Welcome to The Regimen, where public health pharmacists, pharmacy students, and their guests discuss the latest public health issues relevant to all healthcare providers, their patients, and policymakers. Listen to find out how pharmacists and pharmacy students like me can improve population health, health equity, and patient care through advocacy and education. My name is Libby Donovan, and I am a last-year pharmacy student at the University of Rhode Island, working with the Rhode Island Department of Health alongside my professor, Dr. Bradford. Thanks, Libby. I'm Jeff Bradberg. I'm a clinical professor of pharmacy practice at the College of Pharmacy and the Academic Collaborations Officer at the Rhode Island Department of Health. So Dr. Bradberg, we had a great episode last week. It was an honor to have Dr. Aria on our show to talk about drug criminalization. This week, we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP and medication administration by pharmacists, both of which are interventions that have great potential to help people who use drugs. But first, we're going to give a quick COVID update in Rhode Island. Things seem to be downtrending since mid-January in the last month or so. However, we are missing some data here with home testing, but weekly trends in cases seem to be trending down, um, down in the 150s over the last seven days from 300 per 100,000 the week before. Hospitalizations are down. Percent positivity rate is down under 4% from almost 6% in the last week. And Rhode Island continues to be number one in the country for vaccine doses administered. Um, That's amazing. We've been following this data for a long time now. And, you know, I think it's sort of what everyone's been hearing. And today is Friday, February 25th. And the CDC is supposed to change some of their masking guidelines today, uh, you know, and sort of have a risk-based approach. And all those numbers are trending. We still are seeing some deaths in Rhode Island and around the country, but I think we're going to be even more protected. It's great to be great to be number one in terms of vaccination, but realize that we have to have, you know, other interventions in place to help with this. In fact, uh, you're going to tell us about uh, a new variant. Yeah. So over the last couple of weeks, like a sub lineage of the Omicron variant, BA.2 has been seen to be more transmissible than the like original Omicron variant and is likely to become the dominant variant worldwide very soon. Good news is that vaccines continue to work for this new subvariant, but as we've seen, vaccine effectiveness does wane over time, so getting your booster is a great thing to do. And other big conversation around this is, will we need another booster in the future? Recent data has shown that two or three doses continue to protect against hospitalization and death, even with the newer variants, so for months or years. Um, due to T-cell responses, not necessarily antibodies. It's important that people realize, you know, we, we always talk about antibody waning, antibody waning. For all those other vaccines that we get, our antibodies also wane, but because we have these T-cell responses, which we're still studying, some recent studies show that, yes, the antibodies wane, but it's going out. I mean, there's even a new vaccine that's probably going to get approval in Europe and, and the U.S. that showed 100% efficacy even in this time of these highly transmissible and sometimes more severe variants. Wow, that, that's awesome. So I think overall, it's a little too soon to tell if we're going to need another booster dose because there hasn't been enough time in between this first booster and now. So recommendations will, of course, continue to evolve as the pandemic evolves. So yeah, there's, there's even one more update that just came out this week, which is uh, a study showed that if you increase the time between the vaccines. Remember, it's only been a year since we were really uh, actively vaccinating higher risk folks uh, in February 2021. Uh, But now we're sort of seeing that if you you extend the time between doses, you might get uh, more protection. So I think as we see less, you know, amplified waves of infection, we'll be able to sort of, you know, all those unvaccinated people, the biggest thing they need to do is to get vaccinated. If you've been vaccinated, not boosted, you need to get boosted. Yeah, it's very, very clear the advantage is there, but maybe even waiting for your booster 
or that once a year or once every two years, we don't know. Uh, hopefully we have a universal COVID vaccine, all those kinds of things. But we expect that any slowdown in boosters is probably good for our overworked, you know, burned out pharmacists and other healthcare providers. So we're doing all we can to try to enhance uh, what they do. And not just vaccines can be administered. I think we want to, one of the reasons we're switching to PrEP is that it's a way to protect people who use drugs and other people who are sexually active if they're at risk for acquiring HIV, which is a virus that really is lifelong. And we do have effective treatments as we also do for, for COVID. And it's also, there are treatments now in new guidelines that came out in December that we can administer uh, long-acting PrEP. So there's a lot of exciting things that pharmacists can do. So we'll, I think we're going to break this down, right, Libby? Yeah, that's exactly what we're going to do next. Uh, so it's great to see the COVID numbers trending down and getting all this new information about vaccines and boosters. Another thing we want to do, like you kind of mentioned, we want to decrease HIV infection. So that's why we're talking about PrEP today. So what is PrEP? So PrEP, again, is pre-exposure prophylaxis. So you're taking somebody who's at risk of acquiring HIV, you know, HIV again is transmitted It's a human immunodeficiency virus. It's transmitted through blood and body fluids. It's transmitted by people who may share needles if they don't have access to sterile non-prescription or prescription needles. It's also people who are sexually active who aren't using barrier protection. It's different than post-exposure prophylaxis, which a lot of our audience and pharmacists probably know is that if you have an accidental needle stick, depending on what situation you're in or what the sero status of the person whose that needle was in, you're also taking similar drugs for 28 days, uh, much safer drugs now, much more tolerated until you know you find out either that person's HIV status, your HIV status. So that's PAP, very well done, very accessible. That's that PrEP. We actually continue to grow the use of it. Again, PEP is something the person seeks out or it's a company policy. PrEP is something, again, for populations who really aren't using it, especially people who use drugs. And again, a really big section of the population is that this was originally studied in men who have sex with men or MSMs. And now it's really anybody who's sexually active, any adult or adolescent if they're at risk of, of acquiring HIV, they actually qualify for PrEP, again, to prevent HIV infection. They both prevent it, but this is pre-exposure prophylaxis. So you're taking it you know, ahead of any incident, either intermittently or, or continuously. So we talk about these good options for PrEP. How effective are these options? So the interesting thing is, is it's like a lot of uh, medications. If you take them uh, consistently, there are, there are uh, oral forms. And again, there's a new injectable form we'll talk about now that's that's long acting, extraordinarily effective. Um, if you take it, it's over 90% effective, maybe even closer to 99% effective at preventing HIV. Again, it's some of this goes with, you know, med pharmacists are the medication experts. So we're also advising on behavioral change. This person's encountering the healthcare system. So there's ways to sort of enhance the efficacy because you're seeing this person every, every month as a pharmacist. Even in the original studies now done decades ago, even people who intermittently took it saw 50 or 60% reductions in, in HIV as compared to those who weren't taking the medication. Yeah, that's great. It's awesome to have um, all of these advances and uh, new options. Now you mentioned um, the new injectable option. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, I, uh, the, the new injectable option is actually was originally approved for treatment of HIV. It's called cabotegravir. And it's an intramuscular form that's administered monthly for the first two months and then every two months after. So you get seven injections a year as opposed to 
two combination antiretroviral drugs called Truvada and Descovy. They're, they're oral and you typically take them daily or sometimes sexually active folks, uh, they'll take it intermittently when you're at risk of, of firing HIV there. But like any barrier here is that if you don't have access to someone who can you know, provide intramuscular injections, if you can't get to a pharmacy, we talk on this show all about social determinants of health and transportation and stigma and things. It's great to have more options. In fact, all of these fit into sort of an end HIV by 2030 giant federal response to eliminate HIV. And I think that pharmacists are underutilized in that program. And, you know, we're in Rhode Island, we're passing laws and writing re regulations to try to expand the ability of people to, to get these medications and stay adherent to them. So you mentioned um, some barriers to access. So how would someone go about getting a prescription for PrEP? Right. So right now you have to go to your, you know, this is something that's advocated for by, of course, HIV practitioners, infectious disease practitioners, anyone who's uh, promoting, you know, harm reduction. It's just another form of that. So for people who use drugs or people who inject drugs, hopefully their caregivers are also, you know, prescribing and dispensing naloxone or they're prescribing and selling you know, over the counter sterile syringes to them. PrEP is really just sort of another step to that. Again, it's not as, you know, it may be more, more difficult to get because you need to have a negative HIV test. The big problem is these are still HIV treatment drugs that are being used. And for treatment, you need multiple combinations. You need fewer combinations essentially to treat uh, for post-exposure or pre-exposure prophylaxis. And the multiple medications are so you don't cause mutations in HIV. So we were just talking about COVID and talking about, you know, where do variants come from? It's people who harbor the virus for a long time that are immunocompromised. In HIV, even though it causes immunocompromise, you can keep it suppressed through great adherence to very high, highly active antiretroviral therapy. So the, the interesting thing is, is that we have to make sure that you're not infected with HIV, and then we can give you these drugs to prevent it in the future. But getting it, yeah, you really just need to have a risk assessment by your primary care. You can go to probably, you know, reproductive health services if, if that's a, an access point. In some places, you can go to pharmacies. And there are pharmacists who can use collaborative practice agreements or even directly prescribe PrEP. And so that's something that I think we want to expand in Rhode Island. It's really, again, we can already do testing, you know, think of all the COVID testing we're doing, which is federally authorized, but we can do it in Rhode Island. Imagine you could have a whole PrEP service where you test and you either give the injection or you dispense the pills, uh, file it under your MPI and get reimbursed for it. You know, that's something that we can do right now. And really we, we need to uh, prevent. Even though HIV cases have declined significantly, especially in Rhode Island, preventing every infection, again, it's a lifelong illness. You know, when, when I see that the guidelines are any adolescent who is at risk could should be offered PrEP, I think we need to really ramp up the efforts to make this sort of a standard question as any in any health. And just like we're asking about other STIs and sexually active folks, so you ask about chlamydia and gonorrhea, we don't really have pre-exposure prophylaxis for that. But if you're at risk for those in sexually transmitted infections, you're also at risk for HIV, which has much greater health consequences, I would argue, than the other STIs. And again, the thing is, HIV is declining, but chlamydia and gonorrhea, soon to come up in another episode, are sky high across the country. And mm -hmm. so we have other interventions that pharmacists can do to prevent those infections. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned uh, HIV cases have declined, which is great. And so we have these options. So how, and you kind of alluded to this before, how can we as pharmacists increase the use of PrEP in Rhode Island and across the country? 
Yeah, I think it's I think it's just about awareness. I think people just don't see this. They may be prescribing these medications and filling them. I know we've talked about that where you've dispensed these meds, but in your area, you're not dispensing it. Does that mean that there's low risk there or they're getting it from other sources? We don't really know, right? So we'd have to sort of do studies on, you know, where are the meds being, you know, being prescribed and dispensed. I think just making, it's kind of like mental health screening, right? This is a crisis we're in, especially in and hopefully maybe post COVID here. Uh, I think we need to, to do better screening for, for sexual health and not just the disease version, but the sort of like, this is part of life. Let's talk about nutrition and exercise and relationships and health, you know, the, the entire holistic version of health. And if you find yourself at risk, we will try to reduce your harm. And I think pharmacists have that mindset. You know, we are the original harm reductionists when it comes to medication. And here's a medication that can reduce harm. So it seems like a perfect fit. Yeah, no, that's great. And one study that I was reading was talking about future pharmacists, and they've shown to have the greatest awareness and knowledge of PrEP compared to other future healthcare providers. And younger people tend to have greater awareness and knowledge of PrEP compared to people with more experience, which is good for the future. So, so that's good. Yeah, Uh, we send out our students and say, tell the people that you're, you know, working with about these interventions and then practice it yourself. And I, I think it's important to mention that interprofessional aspect. Again, we all are working together with the same goal, help our patients, make them aware of things. And so we can both educate providers and patients about this. I mean, it really comes down to sort of, we are talking, you know, there's sort of levels of care here. It's like, well, the pharmacy has to stock these meds. So when you get a prescription, you can fill it. We talked about testing. So maybe your pharmacy hosts a testing day. Well, if people feel the need to get tested, right, it's voluntary and they're negative, well, if they're positive, they need to be referred to, to care, right? And for confirmatory testing and, and treatment. But if they're negative and they decide to get tested, something tells me that that's probably, we've done the first step of PrEP and now we need to interview for contraindications and medications and, and willingness to accept PrEP of at least that voluntary population that again, we need to do because we're not likely doing this in primary care in that very condensed setting. And sort of the gold level or the platinum level is you've got that whole service set up that you've got agreements with insurers to pay for, you know, you and I are working at the pharmacy and Libby, you're doing the testing and I'm doing the other operations and answering the phone and doing those things. That's sort of the ideal clinical situation that, you know, even if it's a couple of days a month where you say, Hey, today's prep screening day, you can test them, assess them, prescribe with a CPA, refer anybody who's positive to maybe that ID doc or primary care doc, reproductive health doc to, to send them to, I think that's important. And then just like any medication they're going to take every day, we use things like refill reminders and adherence counseling, and you're going to have regular testing. Remember testing doesn't, if you acquired HIV yesterday, your test is not going to be positive, right? It's going to be three months or so. So we need to make sure we do regular testing and, and really keep this person engaged in healthcare and not you know, these topics are highly stigmatized. This is <laughs> what, what the regimen's all about. We say, what's, what's the stigma and let's try to reduce it. If it's part of life, let's, let's talk about it um, and, and have these parts as safe as possible. So, and I think that's the thing. Pharmacists are the most trusted healthcare professionals and they are the most accessible. As long as we can thread the needle between workload, burnout, private places to talk, private places to maybe administer these medications, even though, you know, we administer vaccines everywhere. Anytime we can increase the privacy, I think you're going to have a guaranteed, a a greater guarantee of a a return on investment for that room and other clinical services you provide. 
Yeah. But not um, all pharmacists are aware of PrEP. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Right. Uh, I was going to say, I totally agree with that. So you kind of led into my next question. Do you think pharmacists are going to be willing to provide these extra services? I know retail pharmacy right now is a very stressful place. I work in a retail pharmacy and it's been a lot with like the extra workload with the COVID vaccines and such. Um, so do you think pharmacists will be willing to to take this on? Yeah. Probably no. I mean, to be honest, no. Again, this is the whole thing is that here's something that, you know, the federal government recognized pharmacists as a key place to distribute essential public health uh, interventions, testing and vaccine against COVID. 70 to 80% of all people who received a COVID vaccine got it in a pharmacy. Well, if you're going to provide, if the government recognizes us for that, let's get, you know, let's finally pass the legislation to be providers and, and really talk to our other partners in healthcare to say, we're not taking business away. There's a whole ocean of business that's not being served, that's increasing costs in the healthcare system. We know when we add pharmacists to teams, when we communicate, and when we provide public health services, I think this is a really interesting thing. And again, if you want to be blunt about business, if you screen people for PrEP and you tr- and they trust you, right, they're going to keep coming back and filling their prescriptions for PrEP and for anything else that comes along the way and ask you about those things. So, you know, it, there, there's sort of a a sequence of harm reduction there if we offer these kinds of services. But again, it has to be staffing, right? We, if, if you're not staffed to provide this, and and again, this isn't something that maybe is on demand. Maybe it's once a quarter, it's testing and prep day. And maybe you talk to your local college of pharmacy and have students come in and do this, right? You just said students know about this, you know, in in our notes here, you've got, uh, you know, the Northeast has the most comprehensive you know, prep curriculum. I know we have it in our curriculum. Really important to match that up too, is that if we have it in the curriculum, let's give people opportunities to do this. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it would, I think it would help students a lot because I know I learned about prep and HIV a couple of years ago. So it'd be nice to really apply that knowledge before getting out into practice as an actual pharmacist. So kind of on the flip side of that, how do you think patients uh, feel about having pharmacists more involved? Do you think they'd be willing to talk to their pharmacist about this stuff? Because I know it's a, it's a tough subject to talk about sometimes. It's yeah. Yeah. Somebody's going to come in and say, I had unprotected sex. Like that, that's, that's not going to say that, or I'm looking for an HIV test. We, we see that with, you know, with our, you know, another regimen topic will be, you know, asking for naloxone and any kind of stigmatized condition, it's going to be hard. It goes to that pride, you know, where do people, even in private settings and in primary care you know, physician offices, people don't reveal these things, even if they're asked those things. So I think we have to think about sort of self-screening forms. We're going to talk about pharmacists prescribe hormonal contraception in, in also future episodes. And it's going to be, here's a self-screening form, give you the form, and then let's go to some private space and do it. And I think if you give patients that ability to have control of their health, I think we're going to see that. And, you know, they will tell their partner, their friend, wow, this was a great pharmacy I didn't feel judged or stigmatized or discriminated. And it was great to be in this private space. Outside of that private space, it's going to be difficult to initiate these kinds of conversations and continue them. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree. So are there states where pharmacists can prescribe and dispense PrEP at this point? Yeah, I alluded to that earlier. Yeah, that you can prescribe uh, and dispense PrEP independently in California and Oregon and Colorado. And I believe in California and Oregon, they can actually bill for it. But as any provider who bills the insurance company, that doesn't necessarily mean you're getting paid. So there's also, there's always going to be payment barriers for that. And, you know, if patients have to pay, that's going to be a big limitation. If pharmacists aren't getting paid, 
they're not going to start this service. So all those pieces need to come into place. But I think we're at a golden opportunity showing how valuable we are in a literal emergency to be like, hey, Libby, Monday, we're going to vaccinate 12 year olds. Ready? We're doing it. You know, that's, that's, Mm -hmm. I think, really important. Um, Yeah. And you kind of mentioned this earlier, kind of transitioning a little bit about um, the role that pharmacists play in adherence and adherence counseling for PrEP, because that's when we talk about med adherence, HIV medications are really one of the first groups that I think of when talking about that. So what are some barriers to adherence? Well, you know, again, it depends what's going on. I I always say, you know, you've got to look at what's going on in that person's life, right? So if they're, if this is a person who's using drugs and you engage them in PrEP, uh, maybe a flyer that you, you put in the bag that you sold the syringes for, and they come in and say, look, I want to, I want to, you know, get an, get a test and I want to be on these meds. That's one way to do it, but their lives may be chaotic, uh, may more likely chaotic than other people with chronic illness, even though chronic illness itself can be distracting or families or things like that. It's really about motivational interviewing, working with the person say, what's that? And again, that kind of conversation about this kind of medication and other medications really needs to happen sort of in a private space. I really think if you have a private space, you're going to have greater outcomes with the same amount of time, right? You're, you know, the, if the patient doesn't give you the information because you're in this public setting of a typical community pharmacy, you're not getting anything done. You're not achieving those outcomes where maybe just a couple minutes outside of the, you know, the line to, to, you know, pick up prescriptions. I think that will be, that's, that's really the benefit there. I think so too. So we've talked a lot about prep um, and the options that we have and how effective that they are. So what are some other ways that pharmacists can help prevent HIV? Well, again, it's awareness, right? We're the educators. So I think it's, per, you know, again, depending on how much control you have, it's, you know, if somebody's feeling, you know, hormonal contraceptives, should we be putting a note on, you know, either built into the system or thrown in the bag to say, hey, here's the self-screening questionnaire. So they aren't, well, like waiting in line, filling it out to do it, but you're sort of pushing out, you know, resources that people can opt in on. Or we did a study where we recommended people who are at higher risk of hepatitis the awareness of hepatitis vaccines. And we saw it to be a fairly good success. If we let people know, created a website, had QR codes, they scanned it, filled it out. Again, you know, if we're going to engage younger people, we've got to do it through, through cell phones, through social media, those kinds of things. But I think it really is an all hands on deck to, to prevent HIV. And again, just selling these things in your store, right? You know, there are lots of ways to prevent acquisition of HIV and other STIs, condoms and other things. I think that that that's there. I don't think we need to go into all the schools and do comprehensive sex education, but maybe we need to advocate for that to say, here's the things that we're seeing. And we, and we can also, again, think about, you know, there are people who are at higher risk of HIV based on their med profile. Again, people who take buprenorphine perhaps are at higher risk. I think the key thing is, is we don't want to target people based on their meds. We want to, we want to make it a universal kind of thing. So, you know, if we talk about prep with hormonal contraceptives, it's everybody getting it. They all get the same message, right? Right. Yeah, definitely. So great. So now we kind of mentioned this before. I want to talk about pharmacist medication administration. Kind of what are the benefits and limitations to this? Um, I think you're the expert, Libby. So I get to ask you some questions about (laughs) this since you're helping out uh, to try to roll out uh, our regulations here and have researched it effectively. So let's talk about that cabotegravir, this new newly approved and new in the December 2021 CDC guidelines for PrEP. That's how effective it is. Where can pharmacists, this is an IM medication that's not a vaccine, you know, in what states can pharmacists actually administer medications, any medication? 
Uh, yeah. So in 48 states, pharmacists can administer medications to some degree. So that's everywhere except for New York and Rhode Island and also Washington, D.C. Uh, pharmacists can't yet um, administer medications. Rhode Island, of course, pending regulations and stuff. We're working on that now. So and what kinds of meds? So you say almost all the states you can do it. But I know there's some limitations there. Not all states could do cabotegravir for proper treatment, correct? Right. Yeah. So um, most of the states, which is great, anything pursuant to a valid prescription. However, some states you can only uh, do this with a CPA and others in only so-called certain situations. So uh, long acting injectables uh, like antipsychotic medications, injectables to treat substance use disorders, and then also self-administered injectable medications. So say like uh, GLP-1 agonist or like Praluent for high cholesterol, those types of medications. And so what are the benefits? Like why it seems to be very widespread. I'm guessing people aren't really aware that pharmacists can do this. You know, what, uh, what are the benefits of, of pharmacist med administration? Yeah. So I actually didn't know that you could do this in Maine before, before we did this. So that's a great thing, but, uh, there are really four big overall benefits to pharmacist medication administration. So the first one being convenient access to care for patients. Um, 90% of Americans live within five miles of community pharmacy. So that kind of alleviates some of those geographical barriers of trying to, you know, find a doctor's office, find a specialist, um, those sorts of things. Um, also going along with that, pharmacies are open evenings and weekends. Generally, doctor's offices and clinics are open during Monday through Friday business hours, nine to five. So if you have someone working those hours, you can't get to the doctor to have those meds administered. And again, the pharmacy's job is to stock these medications. So Virtually everything can be ordered and stocked in a pharmacy, having that right there. And why not when you go to pick it up, you can get it administered by that pharmacist. So the second big thing is really improved adherence to therapies. So patients with who have received um, long-acting injectable antipsychotic medications um, at a pharmacy were 4.5-fold more likely to be adherent to these medications. I know a lot of people go and pick them up there anyway. So again, why can't pharmacists just administer those right there rather than having to take it to take it to the doctor's office? How um, inconvenient to say, you know, the doctor's office doesn't have this med. Yeah. They send you to the pharmacy. You've got to pick it up and then take it somewhere to get administered or have someone else at the pharmacy to administer it. It, it seems really inconvenient. Yeah, no, Absolutely. And adherence to these mental health medications uh, decreases overall healthcare costs, which is something we're always trying to do, and also decreases patient distress by uh, preventing hospital readmissions, which is another, another good benefit. So third, we have increased quality of care and access to knowledgeable and skilled providers. Pharmacists are highly trained healthcare professionals. Why not utilize them and let them practice at the top of their license? So I mentioned those uh, self-injectable medications before in some of those states. So this is a huge opportunity to ph for pharmacists to help help patients with that, help them um, self-inject properly. You know, that, um, being able to really demonstrate is such a big part of teaching. So why not give them their first dose, show them how to do it, then they're more likely to benefit, inject it properly the next time. So offering that help with first-time administration and pharmacists can virtually eliminate some patient-specific barriers such as visual impairment, uh, dexterity challenges, um, and injection phobias. I know a lot of people who are not big fans of needles and especially giving injections to themselves. So having a pharmacist able to do that is um, a huge help. Every, every person injecting insulin did it first, you know, at some point yeah. and, you know, why not have the pharmacist help them? And we yeah. talk about workload and things. I think everybody wants to help them to do that. And if your benefits are decreased hospitalization, 
kind of want to knock on the insurance company's door to say, have us do this, right? And also, you know what, if you pay us a little bit to help the patient with that or bill that sort of as a visit, uh, I think I think we're still not losing money, but it, it probably ends up being cost savings. Yeah, agreed. And like, I know at work, I like to take the extra time to help the patients and being able to really effectively teach someone is uh, with demonstration, I think would be really valuable because it really helps those patients achieve their desired outcomes. Like, like I mentioned with a GLP-1, reducing their A1C or reducing their cholesterol. And again, preventing um, hospitalizations maybe down the road. So well, again, a- if you don't get, if you don't get the drug in you, you know, think about how many vaccines that I've, you know, I've trained a lot of people on how to get vaccines. And if the needle doesn't go all the way in, you didn't get vaccinated, right? And so people can, we've all heard the stories about people who think they know they're injecting correctly or think they know how to use their inhaler correctly. And Mm -hmm. it's, you're not shaking it or you're, (laughs) yeah, I knew somebody who actually used their inhaler and didn't actually put it in their mouth. And you think, well, that's silly, but that's the problem with health literacy and things is that, you know, how, how literally do you follow these things? In fact, you're going into ambulatory care where you're actually gonna have that time and part of that appointment boy, it seems like a great conclusion after the counseling and the talk back and the motivational interviewing to say, can I show you this in that private setting? Uh, we have lots of folks uh, across the country who work at Amcare as pharmacists. I think it would really, uh, really close the loop to that entire visit. Yeah, exactly. I think so too. And yeah, I think ambulatory care pharmacy is really a booming kind of area and is just going to grow even further, which is uh, really great for those patients. Um, So kind of the last big point I want to make is, like we kind of mentioned before, reducing stigma. You know, patients are going to the pharmacy to get important meds just like everybody else. So if pharmacists can administer those those long-acting injectable antipsychotic medications and, for example, naltrexone for substance use disorders, it's really just another thing to try to eliminate that stigma in the community. Um, Yeah, in fact, most, you know, there's just a report from the the, the Pew Research uh, folks and showing that you know, very few opioid treatment programs, which we traditionally think of as methadone maintenance programs, don't offer naltrexone. Mm-hmm. And while it's not the most effective drug for, for opioids, it's probably more effective for alcohol use disorder. It doesn't really matter what it's being used for. If you don't have access to it, if you, uh, something in your life is keeping you from, from reaching out to do that, we can go through CPAs and we can go through prescriptions and have it administered right there at the pharmacy. Yeah, absolutely. It all goes back to that, that patient access and being, being the most accessible healthcare providers. Um, it puts us in the position to really make an impact on, on the community. So one of the things I think that when we're trying to advocate for med administration, again, we talk about vaccines and they're administered IM and sub Q, you know, are, are pharmacists actually trained to do these med administration? You know, we, you've got to answer the, the policymakers who are saying, well, well, what are pharmacists doing? Our experience is that nurses give these things. Do, do we have training in this? Right. Yeah. So pharmacy students are trained during their, as part of their PharmD curriculum to administer intramuscular and subcutaneous injections. I remember doing that during school and it's been put to good use definitely during giving COVID vaccines and flu shots. Um, so Pharmacists give injections every day, pretty much. So it's definitely not out of their wheelhouse to administer these other medications. We're already trained to do that in school. So go into our careers already knowing how to do this. Why not put it to good use? And there's no, again, a lot of these meds that we're talking about are for the most vulnerable and marginalized folks, right? And people who are stigmatized and discriminated against. If they can go into any pharmacy not just their doctor's office, you know, f- fill those refills, get them injected. 
keeping them adherent and, and in contact with the healthcare profession, we can make sure that they're going to their primary care or their behavioral health specialists in the, like in terms of naltrexone or antipsychotics. You know, again, there, there's, a, there's some folks that we work with that are pharmacies embedded in mental health uh, organizations. And they are all for the pharmacists. You know, they do the evaluation, the screening, the checkup, send them to the pharmacist and go get your injection or come back and get your injection the next two months. And then we'll see you three months later, instead of having to schedule an appointment and do those types of things. So I think that there's lots of advantages here for prep, for, for naltrexone, lots of great, uh, lots of great administration. It's really great that the prep guidelines have been updated to include this new injectable. And I'm really excited that we passed the law in Rhode Island and other places or we passed the law in Rhode Island and we're able to work together to have the regs. And when they go to public comment, we, we have a forceful uh, argument to not limit the ability of pharmacists doing that so that we can administer these drugs in partnership with primary care or other prescribers to achieve the best uh, outcomes for our patients. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think this was a really great discussion, kind of brought everything together. And there are a lot, like you said, a lot of really good benefits to prep and pharmacist med administration. All right. Thanks for listening to the regiment. It's February 25th, 2022. And uh, you'll catch us next week.